What's up, Kevin? How you doing? Hey guys, how are you? Yeah, yeah, looking forward to this. Well, let's get right into it. Brand new record comes out on September 17th and Tuttle Wolves, available wherever music is sold. There's CD, vinyl, available through all your digital outlets, but we prefer you buy the CD or the vinyl because it's a lot cooler than streaming it on Spotify. Let's be you honest. You can't Kevin. sign an MP3 at a show. That's it. Kevin Martin from, uh, there he is. <laughs> there he is. You see him right there? I could learn I could learn to sign MP3. <laughs> Just write that. Jeremy yeah. is of the younger generation, but for me, I, I gotta have physical product. If it ain't on a CD, it don't exist. And and, and I accept vinyl as an alternative, but <laughs> as an alternative, as an alt, yeah, I'm not a vinyl guy. I, no. I grew up in the seven. I hated vinyl, to be honest. Oh my god! But I, look, look at this. I mean, I got a stack of CDs. Message in, CD interview guy. over. Yeah, yeah. See, <laughs> he's a vinyl guy. So you're a vinyl guy. I have been since I can. Re I remember buying my first record, Kiss Alive 2, when I was about seven years old, and oh. I, I've been a vinyl vinyl freak ever since. I mean, I I loved that process of sitting down with the headphones on and, and reading the liner notes and the lyrics and looking at the the jacket and all the pictures and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I that was my book. You know, that was my kind of um, sitting down and reading sort of time. And and I just I love it. I still do it every time I buy vinyl. It's the same thing. You know, you it's, got it. Yeah. Do yeah, you still have that original Kiss Alive 2 record in your collection? or I do, yeah. Nice. Do you still have the iron-on patches that came with it inside? Or? <laughs> no. I wish I did because they'd be worth a fortune. Those and yeah. the love gun and all that stuff, yeah. Um, a buddy of mine just went to uh, Cheap Thrills in Montreal, and he got he found, like, in the used section, he found Kiss Alive 2 and vinyl, and it had all the patches inside wow. except the Ace one. The only one was this. Oh. It was Ace. That's the only one you need. Yeah. That's the only one you need. I mean, yeah. it's so weird to look at him now because that guy doesn't look anything like Ace Freely. No, not at all. <laughs> he, still, he still plays, still plays like Ace. He's still sloppy as heck and awesome, but you know. Yeah, I mean, he's a much better player than Ace Freely was. Um, it's yeah. just weird. I mean, he just has that kind of big, crazy square jaw. And he's not the androgynous David Bowie-looking Ace Freely that we all grew up uh, loving. Yeah, but but his <laughs> swagger is still there. But all right, I wasn't going to start off uh, talking about Kiss because I had no idea that you were a huge Kiss fan because yeah. that's, that's I got Ace right here on my wall. I got a big plaque on yeah, my wall. We're the but, Kiss guys. Um, yeah. How did you go from uh, from uh, Kiss Alive 2 and all that and, and getting into Candlebox? It's, it's similar, I guess. It's got the guitar and the drums, but it's not, it's not Kiss. How, well, how musical you... content, I would think it's completely different. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think every kid growing up um, from, you know, uh, my generation of, you know, I guess, what am I, a baby boomer? Cause I'm born in 69. Right. Uh, we're, the, we're the same age, you and I. So yeah, every kid growing up loved Kiss, loved those, you know, pictures and those album covers and their parents telling them that they couldn't look at the cover of Love Gun and, you know, scribbling over it with black Sharpie and stuff. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you didn't, if you didn't love Kiss, there was something wrong with you, but that didn't, um, I guess for me, it's not what I wanted to do musically. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's not. They didn't have peppermint. Sorry, my kids uh, bummed out that he doesn't have a peppermint frappuccino. It's caramel frappuccino, and you're welcome. Um, <laughs> Tell him August twenty fourth, uh, pumpkin spice is back. August twenty yeah. fourth, pumpkin spice comes back. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, it's not what I really wanted to do musically. I just loved the whole, you know, I guess um, circus of what Kiss was at a very young age. As I got older, I started to realize how ridiculously silly it was. But because um, that's when I, you know, of course, found you know, punk rock and the Clash and the Sex Pistols and Blondie and um, Talking Heads and 
I was introduced wow. to an entirely different kind of music. So for me, I guess the, the way I got into being in a band like Candlebox is merely somebody asked me to sing on some demos and then that band got signed a year later. So I kind of got stuck with this job being the reluctant lead singer of Candlebox. I was a drummer <laughs> and I was playing mm. drums in a, in a punk band and I also had a pop band uh, that I was playing in. And, and I had more fun in the pop band because it was the music was like Roxy Music um, meets like Style Council, which I really, and, and really love. And more girls at the shows. Well, let's be honest. A lot more girls, a lot more girls in the yeah. punk shows. Yeah. And so then when Candlebox came around um, and and we found, you know, found ourselves being Barty, Pete, Scott, myself, um, I knew that it was going to be a job that I was going to um, to be doing for a little while and hopefully figure out how to enjoy it. And so that's kind of how I, you know, I, how I got into Candlebox and how I'm still stuck here. Mm -hmm. okay. it's a, right. it's a good way to do it. Now, uh, you you went to the uh, to the punk scene in the uh, 80s. You, you didn't go into Duran Duran and Human League and Wham. You didn't like any of that pop stuff, or did you play it anyway? Guilty pleasure. Oh no, I I I really loved all that stuff. I thought Duran was an amazing band. Um, I'm a I'm a music fan, right? So yeah. punk rock was the thing that I I was was driven by um and what so i love about, about punk it, though for a second though are we talking like misfits and uh, dictators or like like what, what, uh, what kind of punk everything stuff? everything from the descendants um to bands in texas because i grew up in san antonio before i moved to seattle um so there was a, a really great movement in texas bands called fearless iranians from hell marching plague i love the big boys i love the buckle surfers dead kennedys black mm. flag germs um uh, minor threat the meat men uh uh, the Minutemen. Um, I mean, I, I listened to everything. Uh, uh, mm. It was the kind of music that I was a skateboarder, right? So mm. that's kind of what what drove me. In, and I loved playing drums to that kind of music. You know, it, it just was so kind of free and not restrained and restricted. And so that's why I loved it. And then um, when I moved to Seattle um, in 1984, it was an entirely different world musically. Um, that's when I kind of found the, the acid rock um, and really kind of dug into um, Sabbath um, and and a bit more the uh, the darker side of, of rock and roll Judas Priest and those types of things where metal kind of um, became like an everyday thing with my friends. Um, but I still hadn't really ever listened to like Iron Maiden or anything. Um, so I kind of skipped over that. But pop music I loved. I thought, um, you know, like I mentioned, Style Council um, was one of my favorite bands. Um, also, the great bands like Haircut 100, um, anything that had great pop sensibility. Depeche Mode is an amazing band. Joy Division, New Order. Were you, were you into Def Leppard? I did like Def Leppard a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I thought um, that first album, um, was it High and Dry, I believe it is? Or, mm -hmm. or all, well, that's all that's the second one, yeah. Second one. Haunted and I, yeah, Haunted I, I just, I love that album. And um, yeah, I mean, anything musically, if it had melody and, and some sort of... Um, it made me kind of feel emotionally attached to it. I loved it. Didn't matter to me who mm -hmm. was, you know, I love country Western. I mean, I, Otis mm -hmm. Redding's my favorite singer, uh, R and B, mm -hmm. you know? So I really am kind of all over the place. Yeah. Hey, well, that's, that's what you should be though. I mean, music fans should be fans of everything. This whole uh, well, that's it. idea you that, Oh, I only like this one kind of music. It's such, it's so nonsensy. But well, no. that's it. You, know, you, you talk to a guitar player like John Five and, you know, I mean, he's playing all those great riffs with Rob Zombie, but then he goes, Buck Owens, Buck Owens, the guy, man, he, he's the guy. So yeah. It, yeah. it's all a matter of what you like. It you just know? makes you a better musician, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. Talking about this, you new, 
talk about Candlebox for a second because it's like I was reading this interview with Mark Arm from Mudhoney a couple years ago, and he talked about how it was weird to be lumped in this grunge scene with the likes of Candlebox, and he was like, it was weird that we were being compared to a band like them because we don't feel like we have that raspy like kind of sound that we were that grunge was sort of referred to as in the late '80s. Talk about like the sound of Candlebox at the time, and it's like because it is a little different from everything else that was coming out of the scene at the time. Well, we, you know, we're quite a bit younger in age, um, first mm-hmm. and foremost, um, about five and six years younger in age than, um, the, you know, the guys at Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. Um, when they were 21, we were, you know, 14, 15 year old kids um, in high school still. So mm-hmm. our influences musically um, and, and, and we're kind of like a boy band. I've said it before. We weren't really none of us were friends except for Scott and I, the drummer. Um, and we weren't really friends. We just knew one another. So we're kind of a happy accident and I, and, and I, and I kind of compare us to a boy band because Kelly Gray, who's our producer of the first and second record introduced all of us, except for the bass player. Um, Marty went to my high school, but the two years that I lived there in Seattle, um, going to school, he was in Ireland on a foreign exchange program. So I didn't even know him from high school. I just knew his sister, Laura. So we kind of got put together by Kelly. Um, And all those influences, Barty, you know, grew up listening to um, Buck Owens and and, um, Jacob Story as a bass player, you know, was really inspired by him. And and Barty listened to a lot of R&B and and a a lot of really great classic country. Mm. Uh, Pete was cut from the cloth of Iron Maiden and David Gilmore and, you know, some of the great, those, those great guitar bands. So he brought that influence in. Scott grew up listening to Steve Gadd and, um, and cats like that on drums and, and uh, Jeff Coro and whatnot. So a very precise type of a player. And then you got a kid like me who listens to everything that can kind of throw it all against the wall and see if it sticks. So, well, that sounds like the whole band at this point. That's (laughs) yeah. I think that's kind of why we sound so much different than what was going on at the time in Seattle. And a lot of people in Seattle didn't get us, you know, um, Mm. When we when we started playing shows, there would be you know fans looking like what 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 am I hearing right now? This is not what I'm used to um, right. because the bands that we had just played with would have been like you know playing that dirty kind of um, dirty punk rock or dirty rock and roll that was going on in Seattle, very Mother Lovebone ish. And I compare us more to what Mother Lovebone was doing than anybody else, which is just kind of arena rock. Right. Yeah. Was, was there any stigma around the fact that, you know, you just said you're from Texas and then you go up to Seattle with, with like the other Seattle bands are like, ah, these guys are posers. They're not really Seattle bands. They're not even from here. Yeah, no, that happened. Um, I mean, I don't think anybody really knew that I'm the only one who moved there from Texas. And of course, I didn't move there to get, you know, to start a band. I was 14 years old. So um, kind of my dad, there. yeah, my dad took a job and uh, I went from the beautiful sunny heat of San Antonio, Texas to this dreary, you know, gray as a skateboard kid. Yeah. To a, to a city where I couldn't skateboard because it was raining, you know, nine months out of the year. So I was not happy about it. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So we did take, we took a lot of that heat, man. It was, um, you know, and it was mainly just because nobody knew who we were. You know, we were, we were kids that, um, that just kind of came out of the, uh, out of the woodwork, if you will. Was so it a the, really competitive scene though? I mean, like with so many bands from, from the Pearl Jam, I even said like, you know, like Mud Honey and stuff like, was it a really competitive scene between all you bands? Not early on. Um, I don't think from probably 81, because, you know, there's um, there was a band called Bam Bam, which a lot of people don't remember. Um, Mm. This girl named Tina uh, had this kind of punk band that was really doing what Mud Honey 
was doing as Green River before Green River started. And Matt Cameron was in Bam Bam as their drummer. Um, so they kind of started that really kind of dirgy rock and roll scene. Um, and then Green River started and then Soundgarden and then Alice in Chains. And then, you know, and, and of course, um, Jerry had Diamond Lie. So there was kind of a metal contingency. We had Metal Church, which, which was still very popular in Seattle at the time. Yeah. Uh, which was a great rock and roll band. Um, so there was there was this kind of supportive rock and roll scene. It wasn't until everybody started coming to Seattle to try and sign bands that it became super super competitive. And that right. was, and that was just you know insecurities and egos you know fighting for attention. Um, and um, yeah, we there were a lot of bands that wouldn't play with us, um, wow. that wouldn't do shows with us, that you know that talked a lot of shit about us. And then once we started you know gaining a lot of traction. They're like, hey, we, you know, we'll, we'd love to tour with you and open for you. So, I mean, <laughs> the story, you know, yeah, it happens all the time like that. You know? Let me just ask yeah. you about this, uh, about that first album, because you, you said that you were sort of a happy accident. Um, it comes out, it goes up to number seven on, on, on Billboard's Hot 100, four times platinum. Um, how important was Kelly Gray? Because Kelly, of course, went, went on to play with Queensryche. Um, how much of an influence did he have as a producer to sort of take you four guys that were sort of a happy accident and stitch you into a unit and make this album? Because top 10 first album is quite an yeah, achievement. They, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's impressive. Um, yeah, and, and I, really and I don't, I don't um, take that for granted at all. I mean, it's uh it's really, I pinch myself every day. Kelly, wasn't really instrumental in who we became as a band by the time we made the record. Mm. What Kelly was instrumental in doing was, was really helping us focus um, on the main songs on the record that he felt were the singles, um, you know, uh, which I think is what a good producer does is says, okay, you have 12 tracks. These eight are fine. Uh, these four Let's focus on. Let's make sure that um, that we're in tune with these, and and we we kind of you know polish these pretty well. Uh, so I guess, and Kelly, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Kelly was in a band back in uh, in the eighties called Realm, which was Jeff Tate's first band or yep. Myth, I think it was. But uh, yeah, I, Myth because they they have yeah. some demos on one of their box sets. Yeah, yeah. And uh, now Kelly was, you know, Kelly was like that dude already. And, but it, you know, I guess the, the main thing that Kelly was instrumental about was just the, the tone of the album. Um, his like the drum sound, the engineering, everything. I mean, it's Kelly has these magical ears and um, yeah. really just, he dialed. And I don't know if you guys know this either, but far behind and you, both of those songs are from our original demo tape. Those, mm -hmm. those aren't re-records that we did when we did the record. Those came from, a demo tape that we recorded on Easter Sunday of 1992. And we needed that demo tape in order to get gigs in Seattle. So those come from the demo tape and we mastered them to match the album. So that was, we were already in that kind of headspace as a band, you know, prior wow. to making the record. Hmm. I got to say, when you hear that, it's even more impressive that it made it to top 10 because, you know, here's a band where you've produced a couple of songs by yourself and you get the, I'm surprised the record company or the label didn't come to you and say, you got to re-record this. You got to slick it up. That's, that's quite an achievement. Oh, they did that. But okay. when we tried to re-record them, they realized that the originals were were better. So they right, said, you know, let's, got go, that heart let's and soul. go. Yeah, let's Try go to those demos because 
yeah, I mean, that's, you know, when, when you're in, and Kelly produced our first demo tape too. So, um, and we did that at Bob Lang studio, which was, you know, another place where that's where Foo Fighters did their first um, record as well. So mm -hmm. Seattle's got, you know, it's got amazing studios to record in. Um, it just, you got to have the right producer and the, and the right um, engineering and, and the right equipment to make those records sound the way they do. And, and that's kind of why uh, Kelly's just was instrumental in why that record sounds so good. Well, let's move over to 2021 now, because you're kind of like the only, you're like the sole survivor of Candlebox at this point. <laughs> you know, you got all these new guys that have, you know, I mean, uh, Brian's been in since like 2016 or something. You record this new album at Henson Studios, the iconic, legendary Henson Studios. Mm -hmm. We were just listening to the record before we hopped on here and just hear it again, because it's great. It sounded and great. That was the I, first it really sounded great. The production and is phenomenal. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. And Thank that you. That song, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of great songs, but the the one that came out as a single, "Let Me Down Easy," is just is is really good. I mean, it's it's. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, re really good. Thank you. Yeah, we. So I don't. I'm, we're not the most prolific band, you know. Obviously, we only have seven records in a in illustrious twenty eight year career. Um, but um, it's more than Guns N' Roses. <laughs> no. Exactly. We just take our time. You know, we we don't make records until we're ready. Um, I needed to. Adam, my bass player, has been playing with me since 2000. I had another band called Kevin Martin and the High Watts. Adam was in that band with me. Um, so I have the, had this bass player that's been playing with me now, you know, almost 20 years, um, which I uh, I love to death. Um, Adam is, uh, is, is my go-to when it comes to, to music and when we're ready to do stuff. And he's always been the first person to say, yeah, let's not do that yet, which mm -hmm. I, I love. Um, so I really had to... Um, when it came time to make a new record, I had to make sure that with Dave, Rob, uh, Dave, Adam, Brian, and Island, um, that we were gelling musically before recording. And that only came after that last tour we did uh, in the summer of, of 2019. So I really was like, okay, we're ready. Um, I said to Amy, I said, you know, give us two weeks at Henson. Um, we're going to knock this record out in two weeks. Um, what happened in the process of those two weeks was I felt that lyrically and, and melodically what I was working with wasn't strong enough. So I took the record and I spent three months with it, um, working on those lyrics and melodies and sang the vocals on it in January of 2020. The record was uh, mixed and mastered in February and ready to go to come out last August. So I've been sitting on this record almost, well, come 19th of, of August this year, we'll, I'll be I'm sitting on this record for two years. Wow. When you sit on a record for that long, do you, do you do you listen to it every so often and go, you know, if we just went back and added a part and or if we just switch like did you get that 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 sort of crazy yeah. genius thing? Yeah. Yeah, but you don't do that. I mean, there are bands that that will do that. I'm not that musician. I the way I look at it is is we got it right the first time, that's why we did it. Um mm -hmm. and you know, and that's because I'm a perfectionist and I think the guys in the band are the same way and they'll tell you the same thing if you interview them they would say kevin's a hard ass in the studio and he wants what he wants and um we didn't walk away from it until we felt we were right with it you know and and that's kind of where i come from um yep. and um you know there's a song on this record that um that i'm absolutely obsessed with um and i i'm bummed that it's not going to be a single because it doesn't feel like a single and it shouldn't be a single but i really wish it was Mm. Um, so we're just going to play it live instead, you know, and, um, and maybe it gets some traction and becomes a single, I don't know, but you know, those are the things that I find myself second guessing about is God, I should have, 
should have done this. Throw you know? up a should've... throw up a lyric video on YouTube, and if it catches, then you go, "Hey, look at that!" Yeah. A single. Exactly, exactly. You you can cheat in today's market, which is fantastic. Um, since you've changed a lot of the members, talk to me just real quick about the importance of brand over band, because you've got this band right now, and in five years from now, you might change them again. It's very possible, but you'll always be Candlebox. How important is to have that band and not be the Kevin Martin band? Well, I, you know, Candlebox was always um, a collective. It, it was always more. It's the saying, you know, the sum of its parts and, and not the whole. Um, and and we're the opposite. Candlebox was always the whole. We were always the faceless rock and roll band mm. that could have been anybody playing it. Could have been anybody singing it. Um, the, the songs just kind of, I think, they had that they had something special that people fell in love with. They don't know what I look like. Um, half the audience still thinks that Pete's the guitar player and they come up and tell him how great he was. And it was, and it's Brian, you know? Um, and that's kind of why I've always felt that Candlebox is just a name. Um, and, and, and it doesn't matter who's playing it. it. It's, it's about the songs and it's not about the individuals. And, and I think that that's why, you know, when I did Kevin Martin, the high Watts, that was a different type of music. It was, a, it was a, a, a different style of music. It was a lot more, uh, uh, um, I guess there was a lot more freedom to what I did with the high Watts with Candlebox. I know that there are specifics that I need to stick to. I know that there are drum parts and drum patterns and rhythms and, and time signatures that I have to use. Um, and, and I stick to those. And, um, and I know that guitar solos are, you know, very, very important to what Candlebox does because of that first record and, and, and because of that solo in Far Behind, which is an iconic solo. So um, I use that as my template when it comes to making a Candlebox record. And that's why I continue mm -hmm. to call it Candlebox. Right. Plus, uh, you, uh, you deserve to call it Candlebox. You worked hard for it. So. No, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, a lot of people disagree with you, but you know, I mean, that well, is a lot of people is. are stupid. <laughs> and I mean, hey, you know what? Look, look at what Gene and Paul, they say, listen, it doesn't matter who's in the band. It's about the songs and the show and the makeup. And, you know, once they retire, they're going to put two other guys in uh, the star child and uh, the demon makeup and it'll be it. You know, no, so I mean, I'll compare Candlebox to uh, to Foreigner. If you're going to talk nameless, faceless Foreigner, you have the big songs, the big radio hits. People don't know when they go to a show that they're not getting original members, but yeah. So what? The songs are still they're there great. to hear the music. Yeah, they're here. Yeah. They're there to hear the songs. Yeah, and that's Absolutely. all that matters. Um, just I tweeted quick... this thing last night. I said, "Name a band that should have been bigger than they are slash were." And Corey Vance wrote back, "Candlebox." So I thought that was uh, a <laughs> that man. was nice, perfect um, for today. Just real quick, you 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 took a little detour with the Gracious Few and the guys from Live, and and you sort of formed this super group, for the lack of a better word. Was that a one off? Is that something that you want to keep doing? Is that you know, there'll be another Gracious Few album, uh, you know, soon, or is it just like, eh, it happened, it was good, and whatever? Oh, I'd love to. I mean, I think the guys would love to as well. Um, you know, it's really about scheduling and timing for everybody. I mean, they're they're all pretty busy. They have a, a company called UFD, which is a United uh, Fiber and Data company, which they're um, installing uh, fiber optics and stuff on the East Coast. So they have, they have a business outside of their band. Um, Wait a minute. So Wait, hold on. The guys from Live are like the the cable guy. Yeah. Well, they own they own the company. I don't know if they're Jesus. the ones laying the, laying the cable, but that's kind of yeah, cool. They own the company. Yeah. So they started they started that business years ago, and wow. you know, I mean, I we we all kind of find yeah, we all kind of find something that we can do outside of our you know rock and roll lifestyles that 
we know that when we retire is going to pay the bills. But so it's, you know, it's a matter of whether they have time and, and whether I'm not doing something Candlebox. I also have a project with Morgan Rose called Le Projet, which I love, which I would love to do some more music with him. Uh, Morgan Rose, of course, the drummer for Seven Dust, which is, you know, uh, one of my favorite bands and one of my favorite human beings in general. So, I mean, I just try to keep myself busy and 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 focused and, and doing things that that I love and and musically keep me interested. But right now, Candlebox is, is my is my true love. And I'm, I'm really loving this record. And I'm so excited for it to come out in September. And, and, you know, people actually have a chance to hear more than just all downhill from here, my weakness and nothing. Uh, let me down easy. Yeah, because the record song. sounds great. And, you know, like I said, recorded at Henson Studios. What made you want to go record at Henson out of all the studios you could have possibly gone to? Uh, it's an amazing studio. Um, it sounds yeah. unbelievable. Um, you mean the history there with the records that have been recorded? I mean, it was A&M, rec- A&M Studios prior to Henson Studios. Yeah. So, I mean, God knows how many records we all have in our collection or CDs, if you will, that yeah. we have in our collection that um, that were recorded there. I mean, Hall and Oates, um, you know, I mean, it, the list goes on and on and on. So mm-hmm. we chose it for, for its tone. We chose it for its console and we chose it for its outboard gear. Um, we wanted a, a very crisp sounding um, uh, contemporary classic record. And that's kind of what we got. Did you happen to run into Justin Bieber in the hallways at all? <laughs> no, but Greta Van Fleet was there at the same oh, time cool. as us and, uh, John Mayer. Um, yeah. so yeah, we, I mean, it's, it's one of those great studios where you, you come across those people that are there working and, and, and everybody's of course genuine and kind and Hey man, what's going on? Should I come in and play a track? Like, yeah, come in and play. I mean, John Mayer's right. like, Oh, I'll pop in. I was like, yeah, come in. He never did, but um, it would have been amazing to have John Mayer play solo on this record, you know? Uh, Yeah, I want to ask you about one thing that's in the press release, and it's this line here, because I'm a huge Brian Adams fan. It says, my weakness is a love song that melds the honesty of Brian Adams' Summer of 69 and the passion (laughs) of Springsteen's Born to Run. Um, I've never thought of either as a love song, (laughs) to be honest. So, what? What? that's an interesting statement. Um, I think it's in your press release. Say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got it. They, they interviewed me about, you know, what, what I wanted to say about the songs. What I, right. what I mentioned was I, I love Brian Adams. I love the summer of 69. Keith I Scott, love Springsteen. Man, greatest guitarist. Yeah. And, uh, brilliant. And I love Springsteen's born to run. And what I was trying to combine in this song was the passion of both. Um, and, and, and the love of, of both of those songs. Um, there's an urgency because, to mean, both songs too. Yeah. And I wanted that vibe. And, and I mean, I think that the, you know, the world could use another Brian Adams track right now, you know, I mean, he's just, the, the guy could write a pop song. I mean, better than, you know, half those musicians out there that have, that have had massive hits from pop songs. Of course he's, he's successful and that, and I'm not um, discrediting his brilliance at all. I'm just saying it's been too long and, yeah. you know, uh, I think that the urgency of those two songs is what I was talking about with my weakness. And, you know, really it's a love story. It's, it's, it's the story of my wife and I, and I mean, she's kind of my kryptonite and uh, in a good way, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to be held down by that kryptonite um, and, and locked into this world I live in right now. Um, so that's really what it's about. But yeah, I mean, um, if, if those are the two songs example wise that, that they're trying to get the understanding across, I have no problem with that. Well, and, listen, and you'll be happy pack. to know that Brian yeah. is currently recording with Mutt Lang. They are making a new album presently. Fantastic. 
Yeah, and, and Brian put out a brand new record two years ago. It's called Shine a Light, and he co-wrote with Ed Sheeran on the title track, and it's really good. So yeah, no, I, I've heard that song. Uh, the, I think the problem there is that he wrote it with Ed Sheeran. But um, <laughs> <laughs> well, come on, you want to collab with Ed Sheeran? He write the best Candlebox so, Candlebox song you've ever heard. Yeah, blow. <laughs> yeah. Well, talking about Candlebox, listen, Far Behind's got 90 million streams on Spotify. When you get to 100 million, you're going to have to have like a party or something. That's not enough. <laughs> no, it's not. To be fair, it really isn't. You probably made like 10 bucks off that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I when I look at I look at streaming and I see some of these bands that are like at a billion streams, that blows my mind, man. I mean, I don't know. How does that even happen? How do you stream a billion times? Well, just think That's if a crazy. billion people bought that song, that would have been a billion dollars. Hello. <laughs> yeah, it would you be. Know? Um, let, let me just quickly talk about the the dissolving of, of the original Candlebox. When, when we get to Happy Pills, you weren't happy with the record contract. You weren't happy with what was going on. Um, was that a, a tough time for you where you just said, the hell with this, I'm out of the business and I'm going to go lie under my blankets, my weighted blanket, by the way. Or was it a learning experience where you just said, okay, I got fucked once, not going to let this happen again. How did you sort of take that, that time? Um, I, I, I took, you know, I took a, a big step back, um, reevaluated what it was that I was doing with my life as a musician. Um, I questioned every decision I had made. Um, I questioned every mistake. Um, or, or what I thought were mistakes. Um, and I thought to myself, how do I, how do I not do this again? And, and the obvious answer was never signed to a major. Um, so I've avoided that like the plague. I mean, I was offered a deal with my band, the high Watts in 2004 from RCA records that was, um, substantial and, um, and very, very tempting. Uh, but the one thing that um, got in the way was that uh, their control of my masters, which I just did, I was not going to allow to happen. So, um, you know, when you can avoid that type of stuff, um, it, you're, you're happier. Um, and I'm much happier than I ever was being signed to a major. The only downside is that you don't have major distribution. You don't have major dollars. And you know, if you want to sell Mark a million records, you you. Gotta, yeah, you got to you got to spend a lot of money to sell a million records, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's the only downside. But I'm much happier and I get to tour when I want. I get to make records when I want and and, and I get to see Pete Barty. Yeah. And how I want. Exactly. And I get to see the guys in my band, Pete Barty and Scott, the old, you know, the, the original members, uh, you know, every five years or so to get out and play some, you know, re uh we're putting the band back together shows, you know, whatever. I mean, it's like, whatever you want to call it, yeah. um, celebration shows. And, and, and I love that, you know, I love seeing those guys and I talk to them at least once a month, you know, um, there's no, we don't hate one another. It's just, they all have lives outside of Candlebox. You know, right. they found something to go to after they left the band in 98. And, um, and I'm happy for them that they're, they're home with their children, living their lives and, and being, you know, productive humans. I'm just going to follow up just real quick on that. Do you look at that time now in 2021 with bitterness or do you look at it with like no that that taught me something and i'm glad it happened oh no it's it's the greatest experience ever i mean i'm i'm the person i am now um because of that um i would never met my wife if i had, if my life would be different i wouldn't have my son jasper if my life were different you know it's it's 
all I, I've always looked at life that way. Whatever comes my way, um, I will look directly straight down that barrel and, and roll with it, you know? Right. Well, great. I, I guess that's all you can really do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can't change anything. No. Well, Kevin, you said it all, man. This is great. Uh, brand new record, <laughs> Wolves, September 17th, available for Music of Soul. Go buy the vinyl. So Kevin's very happy about that. Buy the CD, so Mitch is happy about that. And I just want you to hear the music. So do whatever you so please, as long as you buy it and support the new music, right? Can't so sign you Spotify. But you are you, can sign are a you guys going to be hitting the road? Are you going to be doing some shows in support yeah. of this? or? Yeah, yeah. We start up on uh, September 3rd in Rock, Oklahoma. We go all the way through November 7th. We've got the two reunion shows in Seattle for the day for the uh, 25th anniversary of Lucy. So, um, yeah. And then we're going back out next spring and next summer. So we'll be out on this record for a good year. Are you are you nervous at all, given the current situation and, and you're seeing bands almost daily canceling shows? I mean, from Tesla to Corn to Fallout Boy to I mean, just everybody. Yeah, no, we. Of- we canceled. We canceled a show in, in uh, Arkansas because the Purdue promoter called and said, "Listen, I had two bands come through here two weeks ago, two weeks prior to that, and they both come down with COVID. I don't want you guys coming. We only have twenty ICU beds in Arkansas. We'll reschedule for next year." So it's happening, um, and we're all vaccinated, and we're 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 hoping that everybody else gets vaccinated. But you can't, you know, you can't force people to do that. You you want them to because this is our livelihood. We haven't had a job for you know, 18 months. So we're all trying to stay healthy out there, but you know, um, some people just don't look at it that way and that's their prerogative and their choice. Yeah. And, and it's oh, funny, totally. I, I was talking to one, you know, there's, there's AEG and live nation. I was talking to somebody mm-hmm. who works for one of those and I'm not going to get specific. And he said to me, I think it's going to be shut down by October. And I was, just, yeah, we're, we're afraid of that as well. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Mm, we need our rock and roll. Yeah. Well, people, you know, people aren't going to, you know, the the thing is you get vaccinated, you're still going to get sick. You're just not going to die. I just had a friend um, that passed away uh, on Monday, actually, from COVID, which, you know, I'm shocked in uh, in Florida kid, you know, and I I've known him since 1995. And I just was like, I cannot believe this, man. Why would you not get the vaccine? You're you're 38 year old kid, you know, and you're gone and you left your business your family, everything's gone for you, you know? And I mean, it's just, it just makes me crazy that people just don't want to do this. I don't understand. Well, my condolences on, on, on your loss. That's, that's yeah, terrible. Sorry to hear and that, and yeah. you know what? The, even with the vaccine, they're saying that 40% of people are still getting sick. And it's just like, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I mean, the vaccines, you're going to get sick, you know, you're just not going to die. And it's like a flu shot. Um, you, you may still get the flu, but you're not going to get deathly ill from it. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. And this is the world we live in. And by the way, we're going to keep seeing these kinds of uh, viruses. So, I mean, for those of you who aren't getting vaccinated, you know, for this one, uh, maybe for the next weird, crazy world ending virus we get, you will. Yeah. Let's let's get back to the music for a second. Wolves, uh, September 17th. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I I try to stay away from the whole... uh, yeah and i try to i try to uh, celebrate the music and uh it's been great and of course uh, since we're the same age i grew up and i got to hear uh your stuff on the radio all the time and uh it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you yeah Thanks, before man. we Thank go before that. we go favorite kiss record oh geez um dynasty i love dynasty because it's so pop um Yes. I mean, Charisma is like one of my favorite songs, but I'd have to say Love Gun or Destroyer. Mm-hmm. Those Bob Ezrin albums, man, are, you know, 
everything Bob Ezrin's ever done, Destroyer just, it makes me think of Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies, and it makes me think of Pink Floyd the Wall. I mean, it's just got that Bob Ezrin vibe, and I love those records he's produced. Um, so I would just say probably Destroyer's my favorite of all time of Kiss. So that means for the next Candlebox record, we need to we need to grab Bob Ezrin to do it. Oh my God, I would. I mean, I would lose my mind if Bob Ezrin produced me. But I don't think he's got the same ears as he had back then, man. It's a different world. It is true. It is. And but <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll settle for a charisma cover then. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Got that. I'll give you one of those. <laughs> That's Hell easy yeah. to do. You guys come to Montreal. We need to hear the. Yeah. I love that song. That so was the good. that was the first album I ever purchased with my own money. Well, my mom's money, but my own money. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was, you know, come on. It's a great album. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Kevin Kevin, it was so great to chat and great to meet you. And we'll uh, see you soon. Best of luck with this record. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right. Cheers. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye. There you go.